Welcome to Exploring Arizona Life Science Research and Biodiversity with the Tree of Life Web Project. Visit podcasts at towweb.org for learning materials to accompany this episode and to find out how to contribute to the series. I'm Lisa Schwartz, Tow Learning Materials Editor. For this episode, we are at the University of Arizona's Tumamac Hill Ecological Research Station with UA student and biologist Kim Franklin interviewing Dr. Mike Rosenzweig, founder of the UA Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and recently appointed director of the Tumamac Hill Research Station. Hi, uh, I'm Mike Rosenzweig. I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the university, and I am the director of the newly established Alliance for Reconciliation Ecology, and that's really what we're here to talk about. Dr. Rosenzweig's research covers a wide range of topics in ecology and evolutionary biology, but today we're going to talk mostly about biodiversity and, and habitat loss and and a uh, field of ecology called reconciliation ecology, which is very practically oriented into ways that we can minimize biodiversity loss and actually increase biodiversity in the places where we, we live, work, and play. So I thought that um, we first would talk a little bit about the species area relationship, which is something that you've spent a lot of time studying. And it's one of, I guess, ecology's oldest law, if not the oldest law in ecology. And it goes something like the larger areas contain more species. That's exactly right, Kim. <laughs> yeah, you got it. So, um, uh, and it is the oldest. It's um, a law that was first proposed in 1805 in Paris by von Humboldt, and uh, ecologists have been studying it ever since then, including people who are studying it in the fossil record. We've got that law going way back, back 400 million years, for example, with plants. Uh, it, it's amazingly powerful. It has many scales, but one of the scales is particularly troubling, and that one that one tells us how many species we can expect to be able to last. What's going to happen to the sustainable level of biodiversity in the world and in the United States of America? Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it tells us the basic reason that habitat loss is such a very, very serious problem. Because even if you take the same number of habitats and you just shrink them, you've lost mm -hmm. the area. And that means you lose an immense proportion of the species, a proportion which is very close to the proportion of the habitat loss that you sustain. Uh, can, I, can I first ask you, I think maybe some people would wonder why with, do larger areas contain more species? What are some of the reasons that... Well, the, the reasons actually are very well known. You know, you, you give scientists 200 years to study something and they eventually come up with some answers. Uh, and this is a place where we have answers. Uh, in, in the first place, we know that the, no, the rate at which new species are formed on the face of the Earth depends upon the amount of area that they have available. Uh, and, and that occurs because of some well-known principles of evolutionary biology in which the formation of new species involves splitting them up into little subpopulations and giving them a chance to evolve on their own. Uh, and the greater the area, the more subpopulations you have, the more new species you can get started. It's also known that as you shrink the area where a species can live, uh, you increase the, its, its, its risk of extinction. Um, 
you get only a very small area, it just might get hit by a hurricane or an earthquake eventually. Uh, and there are other things that are even more subtle than that that cause the, the rate at which species become extinct to go up as the area in which they live goes down. And so basically that's the, that's the, that's the reason for mm -hmm. the species area relationship of the largest scale, mm -hmm. which is the Earth we live in. So in your, um, I was reading your book, and there's an astonishing number in the book that humans now occupy 95% of Earth's terrestrial land area. And um, what that means for the species that are given the remaining 5% of the land area is that we're going to lose almost all of them. From That's right. And um, so... I think that the, the thing that has come out of this is since we're not making any plans to give back any of the area that we've taken, is that we have to do something with the area that we have to make it more suitable for all these species that still require habitat and, and have not adjusted to living into our human-occupied habitats as they are today. You got it. And got it. this is... Um, what you call reconciliation ecology? Yes. The idea is if we can't, we can't accomplish fully saving biodiversity mm -hmm. on the national parks and our, in our great national monuments, uh, and science tells us we can't do it. Everybody now in the field is, has begun to recognize this truth. Then what do we do? Do we turn our backs on biodiversity and just let it crash? Um, or do we say we can be cleverer than that? Just because we're using a piece of property to live on, to ranch in, um, to run an airport or an air force base in, doesn't mean that it's lost the biodiversity. We simply have we modify those habitats. We simply have to modify them in new ways that allow other species to come in and join us in our use of the land. It's I call it very often having our land and sharing it, too. I would think that some people in, in Tucson might make the argument that while we have Swallow National Park on both the east and west side of Tucson, we have the Catalinas, we have Coronado National Forest nearby, why in Tucson do we need to worry about creating habitat for wildlife when we have all these reserves within a, I don't know, a 20-mile diameter, you know? The short answer is Tucson is part of the world. It's part of the globe. Uh -huh. um, and every bit that we can save helps. In addition to that, we can use science, ecological science, to begin to preserve species in the city and in other areas that we use around the city. We can begin to target species and preserve species that are not being preserved in the national parks and the national monuments. Uh, when I first saw the city of Tucson in 1962, the place where we now live and have lived for 30 years, uh, was desert. It was creosote bush desert, rolling hills, a few saguaro cacti, but it was desert. That's gone. And the trend is very, very clear. Uh, human population use is increasing. We are very happy to live on the land. We do tremendous amounts of things to change the face of the land that we occupy. Um, and what we are learning in various little experiments around the world is that we can do that 
non-destructively. We may not have, when we're finished, a habitat that looks like it did before we started, but that doesn't have to mean it has to be a sterile habitat. It can be a living habitat full of life, full of the species uh, that formerly inhabited it, but just kind of moving over a little bit and letting us live on it too. It's this aspect of sharing that I like to emphasize. So all the, all the species that are out there that we're interested in preserving and bringing into our, mm -hmm. our areas where we mm -hmm. live and work, they all have very specific habitat requirements. But we don't know all of the habitat requirements for all those species, and so it seems sometimes like a very daunting task when I think about my own backyard. What should I, what should I be doing to try and invite more species of birds or lizards or beetles into my backyard, and, and what kind of research that we need to be focusing on right now? You've got the word right. It's research. This is, uh, we're not talking about something that's just making the planet greener. We're talking about targeting the habitat needs of species, and we're not going to produce their original habitat. Mm -hmm. We need to meet them halfway. That's going to take research. Um, there are such a large number of species, even in this area, that we're not going to be able to do that for every single species. Uh, but we can do it for sets of species. We can also uh, learn how that set of species is carrying other species on its back. Uh, if, if, if your neighborhood is a good place for gambles quail, it's also going to be a good place for a lot of other species that we haven't targeted yet. And gambles quail is a good example of where we've learned through research uh, over the past 10 years exactly what it takes to support mm -hmm. in a city neighborhood. And you see it actually around in city neighborhoods. Yes, if, they're, if they have enough desert vegetation, it mm -hmm. takes about 15% cover by desert vegetation. And it doesn't matter um, what the desert vegetation is. It, as long as it's native desert vegetation, desert scrub, we like to call it, you know, they'll do fine. Uh, the only provi proviso in that is that an individual property owner, unless she's very rich, can't do it by herself. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to band together with your neighbors because, for example, for gambles quail, you need it. You need an area with a radius about the size of a football field. Uh, and when you've got enough of your neighbors banded together to agree that they're going to have some desert scrub in their backyard too or their front yard, uh, all of a sudden you've got gambles quail. But if you try to you, you try to do that same thing with three or four city lots in the neighborhood, it isn't going to work. There's just not going to be enough forage. There's not going to be enough hiding places. The, the, the quail, you may see them occasionally, but they will not have a healthy population. Uh -huh. Special thanks to Dr. Rosenzweig and to Kim Franklin. Visit podcast.toweb.org for more information and links to learning materials. Thanks.